0: The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues, and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do you hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum? And he said to them, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at, in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was clean, cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
1: Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us in this room, however we find ourselves at this particular moment, whether we're shocked today to find ourselves in a church or to listen to one online, whether we just happened upon this service as we're scrolling Facebook, whether we come in here today in this room depressed or anxious, or perhaps we just become sleepy in our relationship with you. Whatever the case may be, help us to know that you have arranged this moment, you have something you want us to hear and that you look at us in all of our complexity and contradiction and brokenness and beauty, and you love all of it, and you move always towards us to renew and restore and heal. Give us grace to believe that. This morning we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Wordle. How many of you are addicted to Wordle, right now? Yep. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. there's a lot of vulnerability in here today. <laughs> Wordle is of the devil. And we're going to exercise that later on today. <laughs> I know you love it. I can't stand it. I hate it. You know why I hate it? It's not very good at it. I mean, there's just something about it that just doesn't fit me. And I found my way through school all the time like that. You know, I just was an okay student, math in particularly. I took calculus three, calculus one once, calculus one twice, Calculus won three times, and it was on the third time that I realized that it wasn't all my fault. It was not all my fault, and here's how I know that, is because I got my amazing sister, Susie Wilson, who's now tuning in right now from Gatlinburg. Hi, Susie, Tennessee. Uh, She was a calculus teacher, and so I finally took calculus at a a community college, and she was my tutor, and I made a B plus. (laughs) Hello. Thank you. Thank you. As we close in prayer. Uh, yeah, so I mean, in, I remember she said this to me. She said, you know, the te- here's what's going on. It's, it's, not a matter of, of how, if, it's not a matter of just like how you're, whether you could do this or not. It's a matter of how it's taught to you. She says, you're smart. You actually can do this. You're just asking different questions than other people are. But once you get it, you get it. Yes. For just a moment, I was good at math because I had the right teacher. Teachers are powerful. I think we all would say right now that teachers are heroic. Yes, hello, teachers in our congregation. Yes, Christy Chu, Ann Niffler. Others I can't think of at the top of my head, but I know there's a lot of them out there. And yes, they are heroic, but they're incredibly powerful. I guarantee you, you can probably come up with a teacher or two that changed your life. That you remember like, okay, now that. That, that person really made a huge difference in my life. We're here today to talk about Jesus as a teacher. in this series about experiencing Jesus. And today is about teacher. Last week was friend. This week is teacher. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, you call me teacher and that is what I am. In fact, it's the thing that was, Jesus was always called the most was teacher, rabbi. This was how he was always, the most frequent designation of Jesus is teacher, I love that when he says that I'm a teacher, and that is what I am in John chapter 13, it's in the context of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and giving them the command to love, which makes me think that for Jesus, teaching and love always go together. And I like it that we're looking at teacher, friend, and teacher first before we get to the heavier things of Savior and Lord, because teacher and friend are the proper foundation for us to think about how we understand Jesus as Savior and Lord. Very important. Because how we understand Jesus as Savior and Lord needs to be, has to be, informed by Jesus' teaching. Otherwise, Jesus gets co-opted to be the Savior and Lord of my vision. Hello. Of my politics, of my understanding of justice instead of being informed by the teachings of Jesus. Which led Rich Viotas, a friend of mine who's a pastor in Queens, who said one of the biggest obstacles to Christian witness in the U.S. is not a worldly secularism as we often think of it, but a Christian secularism which is uncritically shaped, not by the teachings of Jesus, but by the flag, the gun, and the dollar in the name of Jesus. Hmm. And that is what's called a colonized understanding of Christianity that uses faith to acquire power, to take, instead of crafting lives of sacrificial love. Mm, I think that is the tragedy in many ways of American Christian discipleship. So, what did Jesus teach? Let's talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the message. We're going to talk about a method that He taught us and then lastly, what I'm calling, just for the sake of alliteration, because it's not a real sermon without some alliteration, the manner of, his, of what he taught us. First, the message that he taught. And the, what we're doing here with this reading that we saw today, where Jesus gets thrown off the cliff, was his first sermon, his inaugural address. So as I thought about looking at Jesus as teacher, it seemed good to go, well, let's go look at this first sermon, because there he really lays it out, his manifesto of sorts. I remember my first sermon. I didn't get thrown off a cliff, but for about 40 minutes, I stood up there as a 20-year-old and told Lakeside Baptist Church they were all greedy, and uh, they were all just, you know, horrible people, and um, yeah, it was a real great experience for those that day. The worship leader was a guy named Ray Burwald, and he got up in the pulpit after I'd preached, and he said, thank you, Freddie. They all called me Freddie. Thank you, Freddie. That was, you've heard me use this illustration, some of you, Interesting. And now what's going to happen, every time I've used that illustration, um, somebody's going to come out today, and they're going to come to me and say, hey, thanks for the sermon. That was interesting. So I'm just going to save you that ahead of time. I know it's on the way. But Jesus' first sermon was a doozy. It was a doozy. Um, You know, I love that part about he almost gets thrown off the cliff, and then it just says that Jesus walks through the midst of them. That's just amazing. Just think about that. I don't even know what that means and how that happened, but it seems pretty awesome. And in Jesus' first sermon, he announces God's jubilee of liberation, God's pardoning, God's amnesty, that good news to the poor, obviously for Jesus. If it wasn't good news to the poor, it wasn't good news. We could say if it's not good news for everybody, it's not good news. It's not good. So we'd liberate the captives. Uh, you know, big point, though, that I want to, show, to you, show you in this is what Jesus left out. He gets up, he unrolls the scroll, okay, that's normal. Turns to Isaiah 61, okay, that's what people do here, that's normal. And when he reads it, he stops and leaves off the very end of Isaiah 61 too. It'd be a little bit like us singing the Star-Spangled Banner the National Anthem, whatever it's called, and at the end of it you do know, it, the land of the free, and the next part's in the home of the brave, but you just stop and just walk off. Everybody would go. You, you, you didn't finish it. That's how they felt when Jesus um, quoted Isaiah sixty-one two and said, "To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and what they were waiting on." The next sentence and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus edits that out. He edits that out. Hmm. He stops mid sentence and rolls up the scroll. And as we can see from the rest of the the passage, Jesus goes on to irritate more and more as He uses examples of how God brought His love and justice and kindness to those who were not Jewish, to Assyrian, to others. His first message was far more inclusive than His audience was ready to hear and I've stood at the place where it's supposedly where they were going to throw him off the cliff in Nazareth. And I can tell you, if that's the place, you don't survive that throw, <laughs> that fall. It's jagged rock. And then Jesus passes through the midst of them. And Jesus very, clue, very clearly is saying, there is no room for a violent, vengeful Messiah a revenge-filled Messiah. No room for one who's going to come in with violence like a King David or Judah the Hammer, Judah's Maccabeus, to come in and and crush the Romans and their military occupation. The God revealed in Jesus is a God of radical mercy to all. And I would warn you that if you demand a God of vengeance and revenge, Jesus might just pass through your midst as well and you will miss Him altogether. Who needs your mercy today? Who has extended you mercy over the course of your life? You know how it changed your life when you, ex- you experienced that. How might you now say, you know what? I'm going to extend that to others. Who is it in your life right now that needs it? Jesus leads with mercy, and as we do the same, we can develop gentle souls, perhaps, in this violent world. I was reminded of civil rights legend, the late John Lewis, in an interview with um, Krista Tippett, and he said, um, going back to the Freedom Rides, when we arrived in Montgomery in 1961, there was a man named Floyd Mann. He was a public safety director of the Alabama State Troopers. He came and stood and put a gun in the air and said something like, there will be no killing today. There will be no killing today here. And several years later, I saw Floyd Mann after I got elected to Congress at the dedication of the Civil Rights Memorial. And he asked me, he said, Congressman Lewis, do you remember me? And I said, Mr. Mann, how could I forget you? You saved my life. He cried and I cried. Lewis was talking about how the civil rights movement was all a movement of love. He would say that when when King and he would talk and say, When they throw you into jail, love them back. He said that King said, Just love the hell out of everybody. Simple, but hard to do. That's Jesus' message. If we go to Jesus' first sermon, now look, I, this you talk about something I could preach for four hours and not get all of Jesus' message. But if we're going to hone it down to something, I suggest we look at his first sermon. That's the first thing. The second thing is the method that he taught. And what I mean by that is, is going back to this little episode later in Jesus' ministry, after he's been crucified, risen again from the dead, and we have these people that are walking on what's called the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And they're going along and they're saying, we had hoped. We had hoped for so much more. We had a Messiah, we thought, but he was crucified. He's not a Messiah if he's up there on that cross. He's gone in despair and confusion. They're dealing with with, with all of those emotions. And this, this mysterious figure begins to walk with them down the road. They don't recognize Jesus at first. But they're in despair. Just kind of a side point. I just love that little phrase. I just resonate with it. I bet you do too. We had hoped. We all have a lot of we had hopes. We had hoped in our lives. We had hoped that our marriage would be easier. We had hoped that the tumor would be benign. We had hoped that, that my career would just have been this. We had hoped that this freaking pandemic would have been over by now. We had hoped It's the first time I've ever used the word frickin' in a sermon, just so you know. We had hoped. And Jesus comes among us in the middle of all of our we had hoped, whatever they are for you today, just as he does with these folks. And he basically tells this group of beleaguered followers that they're missing him because they need a new lens. And Jesus says, the lens is me. And what he basically is telling them, is like, when you look at this whole thing, when you go back and you look at your, your Scriptures, Moses, the prophets, as you begin to interpret everything that's happened, do it through the lens of me. It's all about me. It says that he told them about the Scriptures as they, you know, through the lens of who he is, what he has done, his life, his death, his resurrection. We all are reading the Scriptures with lens on. You know that, right? None of us come to this tabula rasa. None of us come to it as a blank slate. And so I say, let's be intentional about those lens. That's what Jesus was basically saying. You know, we have seven core beliefs that drive us as a church, Jesus-centered, grace-saturated, kingdom-oriented, biblically-grounded, um, ever-reforming, intellectually honest and curious, and lastly, communally designed. And we don't have the, the fourth one is biblically grounded, and it's not because we don't take the Bible seriously, it's because we take it very seriously. And we know we have to read it through the lens of Jesus-centered, grace-saturated, and the reign realm of God that Jesus came to inaugurate and began. That's how we, that's how we don't turn the Bible into a weapon. Right? Very important. He teaches us that method. We have to put it on. And when we look at all of life through the lens of Jesus, we begin to see the smaller narratives that we've constructed for our lives eventually wear out. Eventually, these smaller narratives, instead of the larger narrative of what God is doing in this world and, and, and inviting us with God to repair this world and the brokenness that it, it has in whatever ways that we can. When we have these smaller narratives, what happens is the complexities of life and the complexities of your soul need a larger story, a larger story. And so Jesus taught us that the method through which we understand everything, for Christians for sure, is through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the renewal of all things. So he taught us how to read our scriptures. That's my big point. And we have to remember that. We have to return to that. And he taught us his priorities in that first sermon. And then lastly, the manner that he taught. And here's what I mean by that. He teaches us all this stuff, not so that we can just gain a lot of facts. Every single thing Jesus taught, he expects us to embody with our lives. Everything Jesus taught us, he expects us to embody with our very lives. They are not just things for us to think about and just keep in our brains, and they are not just ways in which we can become superior to others. It's not so that we can just become theological eggheads, and navel gazers, or whatever you want to call it, but rather that we would take the teachings of Jesus and really actually live them out. Shocker! And craft lives of sacrificial love. To read things like the Sermon on the Mountain and go, wow, that's challenging. i got to figure out how to actually live it out. What does it mean for me to turn the other cheek? What does it mean for me to love my enemies? What does it mean for me to go the extra mile? What does it mean for me to develop a life of prayer that's not showy and ostentatious, but rather quiet and often private? What does it mean for me to have an authentic daily spirituality, to embody the values of Jesus? You know, it was uh, Dwight Schrute, also known as Rain Wilson, who said, the metamorphosis of Jesus Christ from a humble servant of the abject poor To a symbol that stands for gun rights, prosperity theology, anti-science, limited government that neglects the destitute, and fierce nationalism is truly the strangest transformation in human history. Friends, I just want to tell you, this is what it looks like when we are way more interested in worshiping Jesus than following Jesus. What do you think Jesus said more? Worship me or follow me? I think you know the answer. (laughs) Definitely let's worship Jesus. Don't get me wrong. Carl, we're still good with that. But Jesus invites us to follow, to take on his act take seriously his crazy ideas that aren't very practical. That surely can't work. But yet Jesus invites us into that life to take on his priorities. I mean, let's just return to his first sermon. What are those priorities? What does it looking like, following Jesus look like? It's good news for the poor. It's release of the captives. It's recovery of sight to the blind. Do you want specifics on that? What would Jesus say today? Hmm. I found an old sermon by Nadia Bulls weber who asked that question of this text. And so I took that and I added on a bunch of stuff myself. And here's an idea or two about it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bring gifts of fine wine and rich food to those who exist only on McDonald's and Funyuns because it's the only food in walking distance from their decrepit neighborhoods. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to forgive all your student loans. Hello! To bring living water to the people of Flint, Michigan and whatever else clean water is needed. To tell the bank janitors that the CEO has distributed all their own pay raises and bonuses and stock options to them. To dismantle our systems of profits at the expense of people. To allow no one to go bankrupt over getting sick when there is plenty to go around. To endow us with a sense of worth that has nothing to do with bank accounts and status. Because the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to the captives, to free the addicts from the needle and the bottle and the laptop, to remove the feeling of worthlessness from the depressed, to bring rest to the sleep-deprived parents of babies. We see you, all of you new parents out there to free immigrants housed in cages, to free those wrongly imprisoned by a justice system so often lacking in actual justice, to take away the profit-making system of the U.S. prison industrial complex. The United States has less than 5% of the world's population, but almost a quarter of the world's prisoners. We are literally warehousing people. To remove all desire for the kind of cheap goods that only can come from child labor. To give a sense of belonging to the alienated. To forgive the sinner. To save us from having to prove ourselves. To remove all resentments from those who can't let go of the past. Because the Spirit of the Lord has sent Jesus to bring release to the captives. To let the oppressed go free. The Spirit of the Lord has sent me to bring recovery of sight to the blind. What might that mean today? to forever change the way we see those whose abilities differ from our own. To illuminate to us the ways that human sin tears at the fabric of all humanity. To allow us to see who we really are. To again glimpse the image of God in ourselves and others. To again see that thing that has always been there but is so obscured and made opaque by years of competing messages and pride. To give a glimpse of heaven in the here and now, as we pray each week. On earth as it is in heaven. To show us that the kingdom, the reign of God is at hand. To show us what it looks like to love what God loves. To allow us to see ourselves as God sees us. So that we may see how there is really no longer a them. There's only an us. Because the Spirit of the Lord has sent Jesus to bring recovery of sight to the blind. And I would say the Spirit of the Lord has sent you, the body of Christ, to do that now. And that's what I mean. That's a really important part. Now. Because you know when Jesus started that sermon, do you know what he said? Today. This is fulfilled in your hearing. Not soon, not down the line. Today. Today. So Jesus is incredibly challenging as a teacher. Irritating even to some degree. Upsetting, discomforting. If I preach a sermon on Jesus' teacher and I don't say these things, you should leave this church. Because the teaching of Jesus comes to transform the world through His body, the church. Today, He says, the invitation isn't in this sacrificial love for all. One of my favorite poets says this. It's this one line. What could you do today that your future self would thank you for? What will you do today? What do you need to stop doing today that your future self would thank you for? Hmm. Jesus, the teacher, invites you to take on what he's he's taught, embody it, and to bless the world with it. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, give us grace. We pray to take up our cross and follow you. That's what you asked us to do. Help us to follow your teachings and help us to know that we will fail. We know we'll fail. We fail all the time. And you're right there always with grace and mercy always to pick us up, three steps forward, two steps back. That's the nature of our experience. And so we are so grateful that you challenge us so deeply and love us so fully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.